Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called To See Death Daily. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 22, 2015, the first Sunday in Lent. To remember death has always been standard pastoral wisdom in the church. In his famous rule, to take one of many possible examples, St. Benedict advised his monks to, quote, see death before one daily. In the 15th century, in the dark shadows of the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War that decimated Europe, a whole genre of literature emerged on the art of dying, these manuals advised readers how to die well, and clergy on how to help them do that. Famous for their woodcuts, they were enormously popular and lasted into the 18th century. One version even went through a hundred editions. Today, things have changed. In 1974, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death. Today, the surgeon Atul Gawande argues that America is a culture in denial about death. Our doctors have reduced death to a purely medical experience, which in turn does tremendous harm to people. Conversely, says Gawande, acknowledging your mortality is a tremendous gift. It reorders your desires. It narrows your focus. It gives you a new perspective that's rooted in reality instead of vain hope for a medical miracle. This is why Lent is so beautiful and so powerful. Ash Wednesday is that most honest of days, says Sarah Miles, because it's a day when the church reminds us of what our culture denies, that our days are limited and that we've made a mess of things. The hard truth of Lent is thus a blessing because it deconstructs what Gawande calls the prevailing fantasy that we can be ageless. On Ash Wednesday, the priest smears ashes on my forehead to remind me of my mortality. To each and every worshiper, one by one, he recites God's words to Adam, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. These somber words stand in stark contrast to the archetypal lie that Satan told Eve, and the denial that flourishes today. Surely you will not die. And so the Lenten wisdom to remember death. Memento mori. Some of our secular saints have arrived at similar conclusions. There's even what you might call a contemporary version of the medieval art of dying literature. In his posthumous memoir, the atheist Chris Hitchens describes his dying days, feelings of impotence, oppression, resignation, unbearable physical pain, humiliation, and vulnerability. 
He debunks the dangerous and pretentious illusion that whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And he says he meditates on the poetry of T.S. Eliot. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and I am afraid. The novel, The Corpse Washer, by the Iraqi poet Sinan Antun, tells the story of Jawad Kazim. Jawad is a fourth-generation corpse washer and shrouder from a poor Shiite family in Baghdad. He tenderly washes and wraps the corpses of the abandoned, the unidentified, and the unclaimed, bodies that are mutilated, decapitated, and burned plucked from garbage dumps, fished out of rivers. Jawad himself is irreligious, but his vocation forces him to explore questions about life and death. Then there's Andrew Meredith. After flunking out of three colleges in two years, he took a job as a remover. For $35 a trip, he picked up dead bodies at apartments, houses, nursing homes, or the hospital morgue, and took them to the funeral home. He also worked in a crematorium, where across the years he incinerated thousands of bodies, three hours each, 1,900 degrees. Twenty years of life among the dead, he says, provokes a lot of reflection. In his book, Gawande observes how elderly people often shift their priorities to being rather than doing, to giving rather than getting, to friendship rather than accomplishments, to family rather than work, and so on. It's a shift that we acknowledge is a healthier way to live. But what accounts for this shift to a better way of being and living? According to the Stanford psychologist Laura Karstensen, contrary to what we might think, it has nothing to do with how old you are. Rather, it has everything to do with what perspective you have. Whether young or old, the wisest people understand that life is fragile and time is limited. Her own life is a case in point. When Karstensen was 21, an extended stay in the hospital changed her perspective on life and led to her research on aging. She's concluded that living well depends on your perspective rather than your age. She's conducted numerous experiments that support her conclusion. In other words, a healthy sense of mortality, no matter what your age, reorders your life in a positive manner. We remember death in order to affirm life. Meditating on mortality helps me to live more fully in the present moment. Lent begins on Ash Wednesday, moves towards Good Friday, then culminates on Easter Sunday. From there, 
As Peter preached in his post-resurrection sermon in Acts chapter 3, we wait until the time comes for God to restore everything. Thus, Lent is an entirely positive exercise, and believers are the ultimate optimists. I love Lent. It reminds me that I don't need to be stuck in old ways of thinking and acting. Renewal is possible. I can wipe the mud off my glasses. Hit the reset button. I don't need to wait for old age to somehow magically impart a new perspective on what matters the most and why. This Wednesday, I'll be praying with my friend and poet, Brett Foster. After I return home and the cross on my forehead has turned to smudge, I'll still hope for what he calls, quote, those hallowed moments to be followed by sustaining confidence. Seeing death daily for the first Sunday in Lent. For books this week, I review a very popular memoir by Malala Yousafzai. It's called I Am Malala, The Girl Who Stood Up for Education and Was Shot by the Taliban. New York, Little Brown and Company, 2013. This book is 327 pages. Malala Yousafzai was 11 years old when the Taliban took over her Swat Valley in northwestern Pakistan in 2008. They bombed everything. Power stations, a ski lift, hotels, funerals, and over 400 schools. They conducted public whippings and hangings and beheaded over 1,400 fellow Muslims. Police were so terrified of being murdered that they took out newspaper advertisements to announce that they had quit the force. The Pakistani army eventually rooted them out, or so they said, but the troubles continued. Malala's father received death threats, which wasn't a surprise given that he was an outspoken political activist and had founded a major school that educated girls. He even kept a copy of Martin Niemöller's famous prayer in his pocket. You might remember the first words, first they came. By the same time, at age 11, young Malala had emulated her brave father. She wrote a diary for the BBC Urdu station under a pen name that described life under the Taliban. She had given interviews on national television. The New York Times did a documentary about her, and she won numerous academic awards. She knew she wanted to be a politician. But then when she was 15, on October the 9th, 2012, a Taliban gunman fired three shots at point-blank range at, at Malala, 
<coughs> as she rode home on her school bus. One shot hit her, and the other two wounded two classmates. By that time, Malala was an international icon as an outspoken critic of all forms of violence and oppression, and an advocate for education for girls. After a miraculous recovery in England, where she lives with her family today, Malala parlayed her personal tragedy into a global mission. On her 16th birthday, she spoke at the United Nations. In October 2014, at the age of 17, she became the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. This book is not only an inspirational story, it's a window onto the complex political crisis in Pakistan. Once again, I am Malala, the girl who stood up for education and was shot by the Taliban. For movies this week, we go to Sweden in a film called Force Majeure. A father named Tomas has worked long hours. So he takes everyone on a ski vacation to the French Alps in order to focus on the family. He gets much more than he bargained for. They look like the picture-perfect family in their ski slope photos. His wife, Ebba, and their two kids, Vera and Harry. But then, but but when they are traumatized by a controlled avalanche at the mountainside restaurant and then remember that event very differently, Tomas and Ebba are forced to discover what their marriage is really about. The title of the film is a legal term and the key to understanding the movie. A force majeure in legal terms is an unavoidable accident or extraordinary event beyond your control that frees both parties of a contract from their respective obligations. This film won the Cannes Film Festival Certain Regard Jury Prize, and Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 93% fresh rating. Although, to be honest, in my viewing, both of those judgments are a little bit overrated. Once again, from Sweden, force majeure. And finally, for this first Sunday in Lent, we've published a poem by George Herbert, who lived from 1593 to 1633. The poem is called The Flower. How fresh, O oh Lord, how sweet and clean are thy returns, even as the flowers in spring, to which, besides their own demean, the late past frost tributes of pleasure bring. Grief melts away like snow in May, as if there were no such cold thing. Who would have thought my shriveled heart could have recovered greenness? It was gone quite underground. 
As flowers depart to see their mother root when they have blown, were they together all the hard weather, dead to the world, keep house unknown? These are thy wonders, Lord of power, killing and quickening, bringing down to hell and up to heaven in an hour, making a chiming of a passing bell. We say amiss, this or that is. Thy word is all, if we could spell. Oh, that I once past changing were, fast in thy paradise, where no flower can wither. Many a spring I shoot up fair, offering at heaven, growing and groaning thither. Nor doth my flower want a spring shower, my sins and I joining together. But while I grow to a straight line, still upwards bent, as if heaven were my own, thy anger comes and I decline. What frost to that? What pole is not the zone where all things burn when thou dost turn and the least frown of thine is shown? And now in age I bud again. After so many deaths I live and write. I once more smell the dew and rain and relish versing, O oh, my only light. It cannot be that I am he on whom thy tempests fell all night. These are thy wonders, Lord of love, to make us see we are but flowers that glide, which when we once can find and prove that thou hast a garden for us where to bide. Who would be more swelling through store, forfeit their paradise by their pride? George Herbert, The Flower. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 22nd, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.